I'm ready, but I don't, I don't know if you guys are. Uh, is there anyone that does not have a copy of the note packet? Fred uh, sent out about 17 different emails this past week uh, with that attachment. So if you don't have one, let me know. Daryl, it doesn't look like you have one. I, I don't. Does he have you covered? I don't know. Let's, uh, let's do, uh, isn't this a spectacular day, by the way? It is. It was 60 degrees when I woke up this morning. It was 59 when I went you, <laughs> you just stayed up to enjoy it, didn't you? If we have to have summer, this is the way to have it. This weekend, uh, well, anyway. First Corinthians. Um, I, if you have that uh, packet, those first couple of pages... I would really like to, to lay the groundwork for this uh, today uh, and give you a little bit of a rationale perhaps of why um, I thought we would study 1 Corinthians. Even before we get to the, to the notes, let me, just, uh, let me just introduce a couple thoughts. I have developed a conviction in the last uh, well, 24 months or so that um, increasingly, um, those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, those who know him by faith and are uh, desiring to walk with him, are increasingly becoming more and more marginalized in the culture. Now, that's not a negative statement. I don't mean any, that's not a political statement. I don't mean anything like that other than if you are a serious disciple of Christ, his word means something to you, your uh, faith in him is, is the, perhaps the vital center of your life uh, and you're desiring to walk with him, you're going to find more and more that the culture seems to be going in exactly the opposite direction you're going in so many areas. And uh, that's hardly a statement that's news to any of you, but it's how to respond to that. I mean, how do we, you know, Jesus said in John 17 um, in the high priestly prayer verse 13 through 18 that as I'm not of the world, you're not of the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. That phrase that I'm sure you've heard before. And so the result of that is, is there's tremendous tension because nobody likes to be outside of where the main culture is. And that increasingly is more and more the case. We are marginalized. We're more and more countercultural. So the conviction I've developed is seeing the first century the first century church, first century Christians, as our models. Because those people were very countercultural. And that, again, that's not a political statement. I'm not talking about culture wars or anything. I'm just saying our values, our morals, our ethics are not the values, morals, and ethics of the culture. That didn't always used to be the case, but in the United States it is. So the culture of the first century was a Greco-Roman culture. And whether you're talking about the Caesar and all of his uh, different powers that he exhibited, or you're talking about just the philosophy and the morals and ethics and values of the first century world, they're very similar. And when it really struck me was earlier in the summer, Peggy and I were in London visiting our son and his wife, and we went to the British Museum. I think I may have told you about that, but the exhibit they had there was on Pompeii. Family life, home life, 
domestic life in Pompeii, which was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. Honestly, when you look at that, you think you're looking at the 21st century. It was absolutely staggering to me, and so it, it just reinforced that conviction I have. So I'm saying all that because when we study the book of 1 Corinthians, we're studying what the Apostle Paul wrote to one of the great cities of the Greco-Roman world. Corinth was one of the, the most important cities to Rome. It was a key cultural city. It was one of the most cosmopolitan cities. It was a little bit like a, a New York City or Chicago or even L.A. in the United States. And so it seems to me that as we study this, we will be able to learn a little bit about how the Apostle Paul, and therefore God, who inspired it through his spirit, wants us to learn. Think about how we live in a culture where increasingly we are not setting the agenda for the culture. We're actually finding ourselves outside of the values, morals, and ethics of the culture. And that was certainly the case in, 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 uh, in Corinth. Corinth was probably one of the most wicked uh, and, and evil cities, whether you're talking about idolatry or morality or ethical standards in the Greco-Roman world. As a matter of fact, they had coined a word in the first century. In Greek, it's Corinthiazomai, means to behave like a Corinthian. And that was not a positive statement. If you would say of someone that you, you, you again, it says a verb, you're saying that they are Corinthiazomaiing, I just made that up. That was not giving them a positive, affirming statement. You're saying something pretty nasty about that person. And in that city was this little church. Now, let's, I've laid the groundwork and I've given you the reason why I want to study it. Have I convinced you that it's worthwhile to study? <laughs> so uh, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of my pitch. But uh, I've, I've taught the book a number of times and I, I really enjoy the book. And it is a very uncomfortable book to study. Because, again, as, you, as we read it and study it and think about it and try to apply it, you're going to see the 21st century all over the place. The other aspect of that is it shows, quite frankly, that the human condition doesn't change. 2,000 years, which is roughly what we're talking about in terms of what separates us from the comments that Paul's writing about and where we are today, things haven't changed that much. Technology has changed, but the human condition hasn't changed. All right, let's, uh, let's do a couple of things by way of introduction. Everybody with me? Any questions? just to make sure you're, you're with me. The author, author is Paul. I'm, I'm going to go through these introductory pages, but I'd like you to take a look at this map. If you printed it and you had a color printer, this is in color. If you don't have a color printer, then it's going to come out in black and white. And obviously the one I used was black and white. I'm using this uh, map particularly because it's the second missionary journey of Paul, which is what this is accounting uh, geographically. And if you take your... Um, just make sure you can see where I am here. Here is Greece. Okay, it's on what would be the left-hand side of your, your page. And you can see, and Greece is a very difficult country geographically. It's mountainous, it's, got, it's craggy, it's lots of islands. It's a very difficult country to map. But you can see that the southern part of Greece is a peninsula. A rather large, you know what a peninsula is? Do you know what I mean when I say that? 
This is called the Peloponnesus. The major city of Peloponnesus is Sparta. Up in the, the northern part, this is called Achaia. This is the northern part, but connecting those two is a little bridge of land. On that bridge of land, if you look real close, you can see it is Corinth. That little bridge of land in geography, it's called an isthmus. It connects two blocks of land. So Corinth was right on that isthmus, and it was the most, in the center part, it was the most important city, uh, rivaling Athens, which was in the mainland, and Sparta, which is in the southern Peloponnesus. And it was a very cosmopolitan city. Because of its location, uh, lots of trade occurred there. Trade that would go up to the north, all as far as Macedonia, that's where Alexander the Great came from, and all the way down to the south, as well as connecting to the east and to the west. Okay? East and west. Now, what was, in addition to that, what was significant is to save time and money, that's a very narrow isthmus, just a little bit to the north of, of Corinth, they had dug a, not a canal, but like a dredge, and they would drag the ships across that rather than spend all the time and money going around the Peloponnesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there are people from all over the world that are in Corinth, largely because of the trade and largely because of the, the nature of, uh, of what was going on there. If you take a look at the second page, there is, again, if you printed this out and you have a color printer, it's going to be in color. If not, uh, then you have black and white like I do. Uh, I made a copy of this. Uh, there are many, many maps of ancient Corinth you can find. I chose this one because you can find the ruins of it, which isn't terribly helpful, but you can find an artist's rendition of what it must have looked like. This is a typical Roman city. As I think I may have mentioned to you, the Roman Empire brought structure and order to the world. And their cities, and, and Corinth was no exception, their cities were exactly like any part of the world. So if you were traveling from, say, I'll just make this up, Jerusalem to Corinth or Rome, and you walked into the city, you knew exactly where everything was. You'd know where the bathhouse was. You'd know where the theater was. You knew, you knew where the, the brothels were. They were all, they laid them out exactly the same. The engineers designed them, and you always used exactly the same plan. Rome Rome invented masterful city planning. And so what you see here is what you would see in a typical Greco-Roman city. See the theater? And the answer to that is yes. See the theater? That's the theater. And this is a very typical theater. It was half round, and then the productions would be here in the front. It was always like a wall. You see a number of temples. One's to Apollo here, one to Octavia. I mean, there are just numbers of temples. There are some others that are off this map, a little bit farther to the north, Temple of Aphrodite, and so on. I draw your attention to this part, the Agora. You see it? Like on the left-hand side, again, of your map. A Greek, Agora is a Greek word for market or marketplace. And along the southern part is a series of shops. Along the northern part is a series of shops. And right in the center of the southern part is the bema. Now that's important because like Paul. The bema seat. Yes, exactly right. That's the seat. Corinth had become, uh, I think it was in an AD 46, I think. But anyway, Corinth had become the capital of the Roman province. 
And so the Roman proconsul sat there. In Acts 18, we see his name. It's Galileo is his name. And when he would sit, when he would be in Corinth, he would sit there. And if you, I don't know if you remember some of this, but in Acts 18, Paul and Silas have made quite a stir in the city, and a bunch of the city officials charge him with committing a crime, and they bring him before Galileo. And he stands at the Bama seat. That's it. And if you ever go to Corinth with me, I'll show you. Right, there, The Bama seat's there. This whole area is in ruins. We know exactly what the city looks like. And the Bama seat's still there. And the other thing about this is Paul in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is going to address the issue of buying meat in the marketplace. Meat that was sacrificed to the idols in the temples of Octavia, Apollos, and Aphrodite. He's going to say, can, they're asking him a question, can we eat that meat, Paul? So I want you to have a map of Corinth because this, the, the, the letter of Corinthians talks a lot about the place names in the city. And I want you to have a, a schematic of what the city looked like. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. The answer to that was yes. Everybody's yes. with me? Okay. Yes. <clears throat> One or two other thoughts about the city of Corinth itself. Population was about, now this would be the entire area around Corinth. Population was about 700,000. About 200,000 were free about 500,000 were slave. Now remember, slave has a different, in the ancient world, has a little bit of a different meaning than chattel, racial, African-American slavery in the pre-Civil War South. It's not exactly the same thing. But nonetheless, they were the workers. The whole population of Rome, the Roman Empire at that time, was about 100 million. About 60 million of the 100 million were slaves. That was the main employer-employee um, relationship in the ancient world. All right. The occasion of the letter and its purpose. <clears throat> of all the cities that Paul had connections with, the city of Corinth seemed to be, for him, perhaps the most important. If what we believe uh, from the New Testament, if we summarized it accurately, Paul made three visits to Corinth and wrote four letters to Corinth. He planted the church in a second missionary journey. That's the map that, that, I, uh, that I used a moment ago. And then in the third missionary journey, he's over in Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of his center of operations in the third missionary journey. And he gets a visit from three people from the city of Corinth. They're mentioned in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. And there are a lot of things going on in Corinth. And that's when he sits down and writes the letter. He wrote two other letters. There's then a second letter he writes to Corinthians, to Corinthians called 2 Corinthians, the last letter he writes to them. But there are two other letters which were not canonical. They, they weren't uh, inspired, so they're not preserved. Uh, a letter, the very short letter he wrote very at the very beginning of his relationship with them after the first missionary journey, and then a second letter he wrote where he really chastised them. Both of those letters he refers to in the book of 1 Corinthians, but we just don't have a copy of them. So we can say this, Corinth, the Corinthian church was a real problem church for Paul. The Corinthian church was a church that constantly was seeking his counsel and his advice. 
The good thing about that for you and me is we really, really get an understanding of what was going on in the early churches. What were their challenges? So again, this, this, this church, this little church at Corinth was a, I maybe shouldn't say a big problem church. That's unfair because every church is messy. There are no local churches that are perfect. Everyone's a messy thing. And any of you that have been involved in any kind of revolvement in local churches, they're just kind of messy, dirty, hard little things to deal with because it's made up of a whole bunch of sinners who just happen to be saved by God's grace and in the process of growing up in Christ. But the challenges of Corinth are very helpful to us, and I think that's, I don't presume to know what the Holy Spirit ever done, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's probably in the canon, because it really helps us to understand what were the challenges facing the first century church. And as we go through this, I'm hoping you'll see they're amazing. It's like you're reading something that Swindoll just wrote. Because it's the same kinds of issues, because the human condition hasn't changed. All right, I'm speaking pretty fast because I want to get through all this. Uh, any questions? Look at the Corinthian, this would be, what is that, the next bullet, which is the Corinthian problem. That phrase, the Corinthian problem, is what commentators use. People really study you know, it's, that's not the typical layperson, but it's it's an important issue to lay on the table. Because can we discern as we study First Corinthians and Second Corinthians and know a little bit of what went on in Corinth from the missionary journeys recorded in the Book of Acts? Can we identify any kind of a thread that goes through the issues in Corinth that help us to identify this is kind of a central issue? I think there are three parts to it. And if you don't mind, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. As a matter of fact, because there's a whiteboard here, I'm going to take advantage. Because Homestead has the coolest markers of any place where I have ever talked. These are just so cool. Yeah, I mean, whoever heard of a pop-up marker? I mean, I've been all over this city with whiteboards. I've never seen one like this, so... Tell Paul and Lori they really made a good thing to do with it. But part one of the Corinthian problem was the issue of spirituality. As a matter of fact, now I, I'm going to really press you here, but there's a Greek word which just goes through this letter. It's called pneumatikos, pneumatikon, uh, spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual? That's what they're asking Paul. Because they said it's an exercise of the extravagant, I'm going to use another word, showy gift. That was a big deal with them. They apparently at Corinth had a real problem with speaking in tongues. That was a major issue at the church. Now, why? And we don't know. But they are at, they're asking Paul about this. And apparently, they were defining spirituality in a very external way. Do you understand what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. As doing extravagant, showy, self-elevating things. Power. 
Well, yeah, but not so much. I know. Yeah, you don't mean political power. You mean spiritual power. Wow, I'm really spiritually. I've spiritually made it. Look at what I can do, kind of thing. And Paul's going to really help them rethink that. But this issue of spirituality, what does it mean to be spiritual? Was that influenced by Gnosticism? It could be. I think this was much, because Gnosticism is not a philosophical system that really emerges until the second century. We're talking about very early forms of it here. But a second aspect of the Corinthian problem was their dualism. Now, I don't know how else to put that. That's a philosophical statement, but you, you must understand this. Or you miss about four chapters in Corinth, uh, in the Corinthian letter. Dualism, and this does come out of Greek philosophy, and it's one of the foundation stones of what later becomes known as Gnosticism. But dualism says there is a spiritual world or a material world. I don't mean material, I mean immaterial. They also have really cool races here. <laughs> And physical or material world. Now, in addition, I mean, I don't think that's a problem. You would agree with that. But in addition, they made a value judgment, right? They said the spiritual and material world is good, the physical and material world is evil. Now, that's important because you're going to read in chapter uh, 5 that they were engaged, that is the Corinthians, are engaging in a lot of immoral activities. And Paul's going to use a number of their quotes in that chapter. And this was their position. God's going to destroy the body, so it doesn't matter what I do with it. I can engage in all kinds of gluttony and drunkenness and immorality because I'm just using my body. My spirit's been cleansed. See what I'm saying? And Paul fired off, no! That's wrong! The body is so important to God, it's his temple. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 15 is the, it's, it's the longest chapter in Paul's writings. It's the most important defense in the New Testament, the literal bodily, physical resurrection. Because in dualism, it's abhorrent that the body's going to be resurrected. Why would God resurrect something evil? Because the Greek, Greco-Roman philosophy, Greco-Roman theology, if you've ever read Plato, you know that play, one of the major premises of Plato's philosophy is the body's evil. The physical world's evil. The physical world is an imperfect reflection of the perfect and the ideal in the realm of the spirit. And that Christianity comes into that world and says, some of that we agree with, but don't ever say that the physical is important to God. He created it, he's redeeming it, and we're going to get resurrected, glorified bodies. If you ever read Acts 17, where Paul goes on Mars Hill in Athens, he's in the intellectual center of the ancient world, and he, he's talking to the philosophers. Some of them are named there, Mars Hill. 
And they're, they're tracking with him. He's quoting from some of their philosophers. They're tracking with him. And at the very end, he brings up the resurrection. And then they mock him because the Greco-Roman worldview can't accept the idea of a bodily resurrection. The last verse, though, says, but some did believe. And it lists a couple of their names. So in, in dealing with this, is the, our resurrection body, is it like the Oketarian that would tend to argue for this, or but it, it it says in other places that it is physical. It's like Absolutely. we're putting on the clothes that the angels took off to rebel. I don't I don't want you to associate anything that happened with the angelic realm realm with with, with humanity. Mm -hmm. They're two different entities in God's creation. Doesn't it use the same word for? Yeah, that, that we're going to talk when we get to chapter fifteen. Uh, we're going to see Paul talk about what's the nature of the resurrected body, and it, to summarize it in one sentence, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But I'll answer your question. To summarize it in one sentence, the resurrected body has continuity with the old body, but has a lot of discontinuity with the old. Continuity is, I will recognize you. Mm -hmm. I will recognize Fred. I mean, I'm going to recognize all of you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, although physically it's in terms of its corporeal nature and in terms of everything aspect, every aspect of it is going to be totally different. Mm -hmm. It's the incorruptible now clouding the corruptible and replacing it. That means you'll no longer be sinners. You'll no longer be capable of sin. It will be impossible for you to sin. Doesn't mean we'll walk through walls like Jesus apparently did. I don't know that. I, I don't know that. Are we going to be subject to space and time? I don't know that. But by definition, eternity seems to say there is not time. So, But the Bible doesn't tell us very much, but what it tells us, we know that there are there's, there's a continuity with the old, but there's also a discontinuity. Genesis hints at that. I think so, because just a tad, we don't see a lot of really what Adam and Eve were like before. You answers, but you can yeah. get hints. So this, this is really important. Um, now, I, I don't want to keep, it's, it's going to sound unkind, I don't want to keep repeating this. So are you with me? And those that aren't here, they're going to get an F every day they're here. <laughs> but I mean, this is really, 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 so when I say... Here is the dualism of the Greek world. When I'm, we're in a particular passage, you'll know what I mean, won't you? I won't have to explain that. Yes. Yes. Right. Now this, I'll keep saying this because this keeps coming up again and again and again and again. But I, I don't want to explain this if I don't have to. But this dualistic view, physical world, body, etc., is evil, spiritual, immaterial world's good. That is extremely important. It informs chapter 5, 6, 15, and to some extent, the whole particular section on liberty, 8 through 10. Third part of the Corinthian problem, if you will, now this is going to really sound esoteric. Isn't that a great word? Esoteric. A realized eschatology. They believed, apparently, we learned this from some things 
that are in chapter 10, some things that are in chapter 5, some things that are in chapter 6, and the way Paul addresses the resurrection in chapter 15. They believed that they were living in some form of the kingdom. Realized eschatology. And these two are connected. Their view of spirituality and how they looked at eschatology. Now, I may have lost you on this point. How in the world they developed this idea is, is, is a challenge. But it becomes clear that the Corinthians had been teaching some of their people after Paul left that the kingdom has come. Now, in a sense, that's true. Because Jesus' message was, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So, in a sense, the kingdom of God has begun. That's what the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is all about. But you can quickly take that, which they did, to a level which is way beyond what the Bible teaches. That because the kingdom has already begun, that means the kingdom rule had Jesus already begun, and we can do whatever we want. That's the problem. Because they believed in some super spiritual group of people, and they were a part of that. The kingdom has come. We have the inside track. And, and you connect that with their dualism and that with their view of spirituality. What you had in Corinth was an elitism, a spiritual elitism. We have made it. And we can do whatever we want. We have been perfect as... We've been commanded. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, That's and they distort and prostitute so much of the truth of what Jesus was teaching, and presumably what Paul must have taught. And you can see, at least I, I hope you can, you can see why Paul's so concerned about this. Why he made three visits and wrote four letters. Because if this spreads, if this spreads, this will hurt the growth of the church. And it will hurt the theological and doctrinal <clears throat> purity of, of the church. Okay? So, you know, I don't know where you, you can... define eschatology as a question back here, asking to define eschatology? Eschatology is the big word that theologians make up. It means the doctrine of last things. The doctrine of the end times. The return of Jesus and everything wrapped around that. So what they believed or what they lived or what they apparent some of their teachers and we don't know their names or anything like that were saying that the kingdom the kingdom has begun but the kingdom has come and we are living in a form of the kingdom. That would be a no trip versus a pre. Yeah, I mean it's like you know it's. <laughs> It's like, how did they, there was so, this was a challenge because that's also something that you see in the Thessalonian letters. Because the Thessalonian people got it all wrong too. That's why Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians, to correct their understanding of eschatology. Now I'm trying not to leave, but I don't do Bible studies in a real superficial way. 
I want you to really understand the background of stuff, and it may, in my view, and I hope you'll find that true, and I hope you, some of you have been with me a couple of years, that this is what makes God's Word come alive. When you really understand what's in back of, of, of the, 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 the books, and why Paul's doing what he's doing, why is he saying it the way he's saying it? And uh, this, this brings, to me, it brings 1 Corinthians to light and helps us to really understand. Here was a church that Paul loved, he was committed to it, but a lot of it flowed, a lot of the challenges flowed from their misunderstanding of doctrinal truth. It's Paul's correcting it. Because sound doctrine produces godly living. Unsound doctrine produces unsound living. And so he's got to correct their understanding of spirituality. He's got to combat their commitment to dualism, and he has to correct their view of how they look at the kingdom. If you've got those three, you have the framework, the grid for understanding what's going on. How come the people of this church have such a handle on things like the kingdom of God and what was what they perceive was meant, which is far superior and carried it so much farther? How can they even have that information? Is this is this after the time that those um, those early books were written? I don't think so. The books we, came later. Yeah, we that. think the uh, first Corinthians is written about A.D. fifty-five. Okay. So it's an early book. Okay, so that is going to be before. Even before Romans. Were written mm -hmm. Romans. Mm -hmm. There, I think what this gives us is an insight into the depth of Paul's teaching. Because Paul, Paul spent quite a bit of time in Corinth. And the same thing with Thessalonica, you know, which, which he, he had hit in his first, in his second, third missionary journeys as well. This gives us an insight, I think, into the depth of his teaching. He wasn't giving them pablum. He was teaching them. Um, the, I, I mean, I think we must infer that he was teaching them the full breadth of, of doctrinal truth. He was teaching them about how the Old Testament prophesied Jesus' first advent, his death, burial, resurrection, and all that. And then he would have, I'm sure, because remember, as you correctly said, much of the New Testament had not been written, or what was written was only a few of James, Galatians, you know, a few, Mark. But he didn't have the New Testament, so he's drawing on the Old Testament because it tells us in the book of Acts he would teach them from the scriptures. Well, what's the scriptures? Old the Old Testament. <laughs> and so it, but it also shows you as well how Paul is connecting all of the Old Testament with Jesus, which is what we should do. I've told you this before. One of the places I would love to go back to in time, the time machine, is Luke 24, when Jesus is with the, the, the disciples on Emmaus Road. And it tells us that Jesus taught them from the scriptures how everything pointed to him. I'm paraphrasing, but that's in effect what he says. When, I, boy, I would have loved to have been there. Oh, my goodness. Now, I can't think any other, because it was a long journey. I can't think anything else. And he started at Genesis and ended at Malachi and just went through it all. I mean, that would have been an amazing thing to hear. So, Daryl, that's the only way I can answer your question. It must give us, we must conclude, 
from the, the things that come up in Paul's letters, the depth of his teaching. He wasn't just given the Pablo. Isn't Pablo and baby Sue? Isn't, I don't know why I said that, but isn't that what Pablo is? Jim, um, like the modern day church today, uh, how, how do we prevent uh, that from happening? Did Paul leave any uh, disciples behind to have an influence in that church? Yes. So that they didn't get the oh, sure. in this fashion? So how, what, did you, what do you see as kind of the, both the contemporary and That's a, that's not a tiny question, for, that's a huge question, Fred. Um, I think there are, I think there are a couple of things that we do see from Paul. One, in answer to Daryl's question, uh, we, we, we do know a bit of what Paul must have taught. We must teach, that's, that's I assume one of the reasons why you guys keep coming back to my class. We must teach the deep things of God. Don't just don't hit little moral ditties here and there. That's, that's not the whole counsel of God. And then secondly, I think discipleship or mentoring or whatever word is in vogue today of, of upcoming leaders is, is really, really important. One of the reasons that I'm three of the, the, the four Bible classes I teach are, are involving men is I believe it's so strong, belief so strongly that it's imperative that men, I mean, I'm not saying women shouldn't be as well, but men really be steeped in the things of God. Because if sound doctrine produces godly living and men are not being exposed to sound doctrine, why would we expect them to lead godly lives? It's not going to happen. And I think it's that constant challenge. Here's God, here's who he is, here's what he's doing. I am a part of this if I put my faith in Christ. And then that aspect of discipling and mentoring, that's, that's, what, that's why now I've been involved in it all my life, so you probably would, would expect me to say that. But that's one of the reasons why I believe in faith-based, Christ-centered higher education. If you expect all of our godly leaders to come from the University of Nebraska to lead our churches, what are they going to learn at the University of Nebraska to lead our churches and teach our people? You need strong schools like Grace and seminaries where men and women can go and train in the deep things of God so that they can, can teach it. If we're not doing that, who's going to be passing on truth from one generation to another generation to a generation? That's not going to happen. It doesn't just happen. And, and we've lost some of that. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Let me just—we've lost some of that. I'll tell you, I—we have a lot of connections with Africa, both at our school, me personally, and, and in my church. And one of the reasons we're focusing so much on Africa because Africa is where the church is exploding. I mean, it's absolutely exploding in growth. And you, you have, and if you've ever been there, or you ever hear anybody that's been there, the greatest need they have is well-trained, discipled leaders. It's growing so fast. I mean, leaders that are well-taught and well-trained. 
And so you need that, and that's what Paul's doing. He's training and equipping. You know, he says to Timothy, equip leaders so that you can pass it on. And uh, that's, what, that's what's happening in Africa, to some extent Asia, and to some extent Latin America. The, the center of the, biblically, the biblically centered church is no longer in Europe, or even in the United States to some extent. It's in the Southern Hemisphere. That's where the church is exploding. It's not in North America. It's certainly not in, in Europe. But it is in the Southern Hemisphere. And that, that's why the shift is now occurring, and that's where some more, much, much more resources, both physical as well as financial, need to go, because that's where the leaders are going to come from. As you know, some of them are starting to send missionaries to North America, mm -hmm. which is absolutely astonishing when you think of the history of it. In Korea, they're praying for persecution. It, yeah, I mean, in, in Korea, Korea is just another example of exposing. The largest churches in the world is in Seoul, South Korea. Well, I'm getting beyond maybe your question, but that's some of it. All right, everybody's with me, right? Please, you, I interrupted you. Go ahead. The, what I was going to say is you, you, you brought it up before. You had asked for the, um, you, you've got in, where did this come from? How did they, you know, go astray? Um, I think Dr. Eckman brought up the, the fix, but the cause of it is, you know, I said it was on CNN. It's in the culture, exactly what you brought up before. You're bathed in it. Yeah. So influence has two properties. It's powerful, but it's subtle. You don't say, hey, let's go off and do the completely wrong thing. It's one little thing at a time, and they inch you and inch you and inch you, and the new normal just gets to the point where your grandparents would be like, <gasps> they want to throw you off a bridge. And we're like, wait a minute, this is, this is normal. I'm, I'm the stand, upstanding pillar of the community. And you know, I kind of look sometimes and go, man, if... If I'm considered one of the good guys, we're in deep trouble. All right, good. Let's look at the last bullet, and then we'll turn to the page and get into the actual study outline, the structure of the book. Now, I've given you uh, Chuck Swindoll's synthetic outline of the book. This isn't mine. This is Swindoll's. Now, this, the structure of Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians is really easy. It's not difficult to discern. If you go across the top, the second kind of line in the chart, you have divisions, disorders, difficulties. Divisions, the first three chapters, it really into the fourth, but at the heart of it is the first three chapters. There were cliques in the Corinthian church. Now, I'm using a non-Greek word. I'm using an American cliche, but that's the, they're cliques. And Paul addresses that. The second major part are disorders. These are issues that are helping to feed the division, but disorders, all of which stem from this. Because of how they looked at themselves and looked at their bodies and looked at their world, they're creating all kinds of issues. And there are three particularly. And then the last part of the book, which is the largest part, chapter 7 through the end, difficulties, and you can see how they're broken out. I mean, Swindoll's following my outline, or maybe I should say I'm following his outline, but they were done independently. I didn't, I only came across this a couple of months ago. But nonetheless, this section, we call, he calls it difficulties, this is a series of questions that they ask Paul. And he answers their questions in chapter 7, 
there's a question, and it deals with marriage and sexuality. Chapter 8, there's a question about liberty, and it just goes on and on. And those questions are like questions that you might ask your pastor. I mean, they're unbelievably relevant to us. And that's why I love the book of 1 Corinthians, because it is so germane to the kinds of things that you and I see almost every day. We've got cliques. We've got disorders that, ca that cause dissension and division and problems. And we got a lot of questions. And each one of these, I think you, at least I hope you will, you're going to see yourself, maybe your local church, friends, and you're, you're going to get the answer from an apostle, Paul. It says again and again, I'm an apostle speaking with apostolic authority. And it's just such a great book. So that's the structure. Divisions, disorders, difficulties. Okay? All right, we've looked at geography. We've identified a little bit about the city. We've itemized the three-part Corinthian problem. And now we have an overview of the book. Are you ready to look at the book? All right, we have ten minutes. To look at the book this morning. All right. Now, the the way in which I've structured the outline uh, is not terribly difficult. It's based around that three part structure: divisions, disorders, and difficulties. But let's at least get the introduction uh, to Ken if, uh, over today, if we can. Paul, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Let me just make a comment on that. Verse 1, Paul, as he does in every one of his letters, identifies himself as an apostle. Now, you've you, you been taught that, you know that, but remember in the first century how important that was. The word apostle or apostolon means one commissioned, one sent out with authority. So Jesus is commissioned, excuse me, Paul is commissioned, sent out, with the authority of Jesus. Where did he meet Jesus? On the road to Damascus. Did Jesus see the resurrected Christ, which was one of the qualifications of an apostle? He did, on the Damascus road. Now, I'm rather sure, unless you're students of 1 Corinthians, I'm rather sure you've never heard of Sosthenes before. You're thinking, who in the world is Sosthenes? He is his amanuensis. Isn't that a great word? He is Paul's secretary. He took the dictation of the letter. Because Paul, every one of his 13 letters, this was very typical methodology in the ancient world, he dictated it. So Sosthenes is the one who took the dictation. And Paul's a gentleman. He wants to make sure that the Corinthian church knows who his secretary was. Sosthenes, that's a Greek name. There is a possibility that Sosthenes actually was from Corinth. And that's why they may recognize that name. Verse 2. It's addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So Jesus is connecting the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, which is in the geographical location of Corinth. 
Now, this you will probably already know, but I want to remind you of, of this. This would have been, as was typical until you get into the middle of the 300s, they're meeting in house churches. There isn't a building. You, know, you don't go down to the main street and see the building of the Corinthian church. That didn't exist. If you go to this map, there's, there's nothing on this map that identifies the church of Corinth. That doesn't exist. More than likely, over here on this side, and on this side, and on this side, there were all kinds of homes. And not huge homes. Some, because a lot of retired Roman citizens, uh, they retired here. So some of the homes would have been somewhat palatial. But that's where they would have been. They're not meeting here in the center of the city. But they're house churches. So he's, and we don't know how many. In Rome, we knew there were five. But we don't know how many there are in Corinth. But notice when he describes these people. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Made holy in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. With all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul puts the Corinthian church, this cluster of believers, as a part of the larger body of Christ. Just like those everywhere who call on the name of Jesus. Now listen. Whatever the problem was at Corinth, it did not affect their standing in Christ. They're sanctified. They're saints. So it gives hope for you and me that if Paul can call the Corinthians saints, maybe you and I, as we are instructed to do, can see ourselves as saints too. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I think I've mentioned this when we were in, in, in our uh, study of Galatians, but Paul, and this is very unusual, it's almost unheard of in the ancient world, Paul, Paul combined two greetings here. Grace, grace is correct. That was the typical Greco-Roman greeting. I would say, correct. Grace, grace to you. That was very typical. With the typical Hebrew greeting, which was shalom. Grace, Greek, Hebrew, shalom. It was very atypical. Atypical means unusual. In the Greco-Roman world, to walk up to a guy like Daryl in the street in the southern stoa of Corinth, say shalom, that wouldn't happen. He and I would exchange, because we're Gentiles, we would probably say caress in the first century. But Paul's combining the two, which is really instructive, because in Corinth, there were Jews. Not a large number, but there were Jews. So the Greek, Greco-Roman greeting, the Hebrew greeting, combining them together. But there's also a theological connection. Grace is how God always deals with humanity. His peace is the result of his grace. So see what he's doing? Even in a greeting, I can make a sermon. <laughs> because it's such a it's so in, it's so intentional on Paul's part what he's doing. He doesn't waste any word or any part. He's wanting them to get right in the center of what he wants to say to them. They're sanctified. They've experienced his grace. They should be exhibiting his peace. Now, verse four. Um, I think there's only one letter. I, I'm, I'm, I, 
think I'm right on this, there's only one letter of Paul where he doesn't have a thanksgiving section, but here he has one. I thank my God always concerning you. So Paul is not thanking the Lord for their sinful issues, the divisive issues. He's thanking my God always concerning you. Now, I don't know what translation you all have. Does anybody have a translation which translates that because of the grace? Yes. Good, 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 because that's probably the way it should be treated. It's in a P in Greek. I thank my God always concerning you because, why is, God thank, why is Paul thanking God? Not for their works, not for the greatness of who they are, not for their power, but because of God's grace. Because of the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. Because of that grace, verse 5, you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ concerned in you, that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop there for a minute. Now, what I want you to see here, this is really important again because of the whole book that's going to unfold. In verse 4, Five, four and five, and, to, and six, which really flows out of five. What Paul says here is he's thanking the Lord for the abundant spiritual gifts that they have. Because in everything you were enriched in him, in or with all speech and all knowledge. As an aspect of God's grace, they were enriched. So these, this word speech and this word knowledge, these are spiritual gifts. This is a mini spiritual inventory. So whatever the problem was in Corinth, it wasn't that they didn't have gifts. Remember, spirituality is an issue. So Paul is affirming the abundance, the abundance of spiritual gifts that were there at Corinth. It was really, actually, um, it, it's quite an amazing statement for him to, uh, to, to say at the beginning. So the result of this is, verse 7, you're not lacking in any gift. So whatever they're looking at spirituality issues, it isn't the absence of spiritual gifts. So it must be what? How they're applying the spiritual gifts. And finally he says, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now four things I want you to observe there because we're getting close to being done this morning. Paul is thanking the Lord, thanking the Lord for the abundance of speech, knowledge, such that, this is a result, they're not lacking any spiritual gift. And whatever that enrichment of speech and knowledge means, knowledge means doctrinal knowledge, they had a strong sense of eagerly with tiptoe expectation waiting for the return of Jesus. That's good. I get the sense some of you aren't with me. So I'm going to erase this. I want to, do, I want to do one thing. I want to make sure that you don't miss what he's saying here. Ooh, this isn't... I take back what I said about this. This is an erasing right proper, correctly. 
please express my forgiveness. Maybe it's related to the matching marker that you like so well too. <laughs> yeah. All right. First is speech and knowledge. Paul thanks the Lord for that. And out of God's grace has come speech and knowledge. And he uses the word an abundance. With this result, they're not lacking anything and they have the hope of Jesus' return. I'm paraphrasing all this. Okay, an abundant, out of God's grace has come two things. An abundance of speech and knowledge so that they're not lacking in anything and the hope. The speech connects with this. The knowledge connects with this. This is doctrine. This is giftedness. Whatever the problem was at Corinth, it wasn't they were lacking in spiritual gift. Whatever the problem was in Corinth, it wasn't that they didn't have an understanding of the return of Jesus. The problem is how they distorted these two things. You with me? So he's really helping us to just right at the beginning. This isn't just some flowery, nice-sounding introduction. This gets at the heart of what the issues were at Corinth. So tomorrow what we're going to do, uh, you might be here, but I won't. So next Wednesday what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first of the Ds, the divisions in the church. That's going to take us a while. If you have time, maybe I should say since you have time, could you read uh, you know, verse 10 through verse 17? And if you really are ambitious, read all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Minimal assignment, read through verse 17. To brownie me up, read through 2.5. It lays out the introduction uh, to the division issues. And again, if you follow Swindoll's little synthetic chart, and another helpful way to do it. All right, now, we, we really, honestly, we got more done this morning than I thought we would. I didn't think we'd quite get this far even into the book. But it's, can I ask, are you with me? Do you, are you tracking with what's going on at Corinth? Okay. Yes. I'm going to assume that means you are. That's good. All right, so next week we'll pick right up with verse 10, which is the introduction to the problem of divisions at the church. And I love how the Apostle Paul puts some of this. It's just a great section. So, Lord, we're grateful for the word of God that we have on our laps or on the table in front of us. Um, the more I've taught it and studied it, the more relevant I think it is today and at any time in my life. Uh, certainly, I think, in the life of our country. There's a desperate need to call people back to the authority of God's word in their life. Uh, people are looking for some source of authority, some source of conviction, some source of absolute, because there's nothing anywhere in the culture like that. People are just floating from one thing to another. Uh, and I just uh, I, I see, again, the relevancy of what you are teaching us through your word. What is even more important is we take this seriously, apply it to our lives so that it transforms us and changes us. Pray for these men. They're busy guys. They've got lots going on. 
uh, in their lives with all the responsibility. Give them the grace they need, the enablement they need, and as uh, we try to pray each time we're together. As we leave this place, help us to represent you and represent you well. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. See you next week. Thank <laughs> you.